Brahms is often portrayed as the great conservative figure of 19th century music, indeed perhaps of classical music in general. It's an image that somehow goes with that big, bushy, patrician beard that he was always photographed with in later life. Indeed, from time to time, there are arguments about just how conservative Brahms was. I remember a Guardian article not that long ago in which he was roundly condemned as a reactionary. But if Brahms was so backward-looking, as he sometimes said, now that begs the question, why was he so extraordinarily influential? Because he was. The piece we're to hear in today's program, the variations on the theme by Haydn, or as it's sometimes known, the variations on the St. Anthony Chorale, was one of the most influential works he produced. It effectively created a new musical genre, which is that of the kind of the self-standing, self-sufficient set of orchestral variations. If you think of famous examples of orchestral variations since Brahms, Elgar's Enigma variations, Schoenberg's variations for orchestra, or say Benjamin Britten's variations on the theme of Frank Bridge, you could argue that they wouldn't have been possible without Brahms's example, Brahms's pioneering example there in the forefront. The work itself has a very simple, but again, very clearly laid out form. First, there's the theme, then eight variations in different tempos, and a big finale to round the work off. The variations on the theme of Haydn are actually one of Brahms's earliest major works. It's his first full piece for full orchestra, his first major work for full orchestra, and he wrote it in 1873. And the success of the work, it was a huge success. In fact, when it was performed at the Crystal Palace in this country in 1874, it was immediately encored. The success was very important because it gave him the confidence he needed to finish his first symphony, which, can you believe it, took him 20 years to write. Why was this piece so successful? Well, that's one of the things we'll be trying to answer in today's program. One reason is perhaps Brahms's wisdom in the theme he chose to base his variations on. A variation theme needs to have special qualities. And one of the qualities that it doesn't need to have is that it doesn't need to be a great tune. In fact, great tunes often make very bad themes for variations. Now, if that sounds like a bit of a paradox, let's give you an example of this. If you take one of the most famous of all orchestral tunes, one I'm sure you'll all recognize, the love theme from Tchaikovsky's Romeo and Juliet.
Well, that's a wonderful tune, and it's instantly recognizable. But in a way, that's part of the problem. How would you vary a tune like that? Would you add twiddly bits or change the harmonies? No, you really couldn't do that. It doesn't lend itself to decoration or breaking down into fragments and recycling. It would be far too easy to spoil it. And Tchaikovsky significantly doesn't do that in his Romeo and Juliet. He just presents it in new guises in fuller orchestrations. It's perfect just as it is. But the theme that Brahms uses for his variations is quite different. It's a theme which comes with the name the St. Anthony Chorale. And when Brahms discovered it, it was attributed to Haydn. Now, this was probably wrong. It was, probably wasn't Haydn who wrote it at all, so there's a problem with the title to start with. But in fact, it seems that it was probably written by Brahms's star pupil, Ignaz Pleyel. That's no matter. It's a very distinctive theme, but it's also very simple. It's not a great tune in the way that the Tchaikovsky was, but it's got some very very distinctive and easily recognizable features, and that's what makes it a good theme for varying. Here's the theme. Now, there are so many simple but distinctive and striking ideas in that. They're a gift to a composer. You take this very simple phrase right at the beginning. It's a dotted rhythm and then a descending scale figure played by the oboe and the bassoon. And then there's this little turn-like figure which is just presented by the oboe. Very simple, but very memorable. And then there are even simpler elements than that, which nevertheless are easy to fix in the memory. What about these repeated notes, for instance, at the very end of the theme? Well, you don't get much simpler an idea than that. You can hardly call that a tune or even a melodic phrase. But Brahms makes that little figure of just those repeated notes a kind of launching pad for his first variation. In fact, if you listen to the whole of the first variation and keep those repeated notes, dam, bam, 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 in mind, you'll hear they're always there in the background in this music, somewhere on some group of instruments.
So that tiny little phrase, so simple, almost bland, becomes the basis of an entire variation and all the intricate counterpoint that Brahms weaves about it. Nevertheless, that's the basis. But there are other rather striking features of this theme that Brahms has chosen for his variations. Again, simple but very distinctive. Try counting along with the theme as we just play the first half of it now. Count along with the bars, one, two, one, two. You'll notice as you hear that, that in fact, the first two phrases of the theme are actually five bars long, unusual in classical music. One, two, three, four, Five, one, two, three, four, five. And the second half is a little bit different from that. First of all, there are nice regular two-bar phrases, four of those. But then the five-bar phrase returns, and then there's a kind of winding down in the coda. And this is how it works. One, two, one. Two, one, two, one, two, one, two, three, four, five, and then the winding down. Well, try and keep that pattern at the back of your minds. Five, five, then four twos, four two-bar phrases, and then the five-bar phrase again, and the winding down. Because that pattern, that template, is at the back of all eight of Brahms's variations. He adheres to it completely all the time. And that makes a marvelous way of connecting the variations with the theme, even when the music that we're hearing doesn't actually sound like the theme. Brahms had a huge interest in the music of the past, not just in Haydn, that was rather unusual for his time. Uh, in fact, if you think about it, in Brahms's time, the past, musically speaking, perhaps didn't mean much more than, say, Beethoven or Haydn, just a couple of generations earlier. Brahms was one of the first musicians to take an interest in the music of the remote past, the Baroque era, and the music before that, what we now call early music. He was also particularly interested in the kind of devices that composers in previous ages had used, often devices that the Romantics thought were terribly restricted and outmoded and rather crabbed. But in the process of reviving these old devices, Brahms gives completely new life to them. We'll find a very striking example of that in the finale of these variations, where he revives an old form of variations called Passacaglia. But if we look at variation one again, you'll see in reviving a practice that was very common in Bach's day, but had completely dropped out of currency by the time Brahms was composing. It's a device called invertible counterpoint. If that sounds rather intimidating, it's very simple and easy to demonstrate in what Brahms does. First of all, the violins play the top line in variation one. Underneath that, the violas and the cellos play a kind of counter melody. This is the bass to the treble we've just heard. But then Brahms turns the texture completely on its head. That's why it's called invertible counterpoint. In other words, what was previously top becomes bass, what was previously bass becomes top. The violins and violas play what the cellos played before, 
and the cellos and bassoons play what the violins played before. So that's an old device, a device thought outmoded in Brahms's time, that he revives with very striking effect in this piece. But Brahms still goes on finding all sorts of little ideas, striking ideas in the themes that he can make the basis of developments later on. Do you remember that tiny little dotted rhythm figure that appeared in the very first phrase of the theme? That little dum dum now dominates variation two. You can hear it all the time in the background. But you'll also hear those patterns of those falling scales. Da, da, dee, da. So the contour, the skeleton of the melody, as it were, is present in the background all the time too. And all the time, the theme goes on, presenting itself in the background in the form of those irregular phrase lengths. Five bars here, five bars, then two bars, two bars, and five again. Now, Brahms takes an even tinier element to launch his third variation. It's just the first three notes of the theme as we first heard it. Now, it's incredibly short, so just to make sure you've got it, let's hear it again. Just three notes. You'll hear how those become the launch pad for the melody that starts the third variation. And still, you're aware of that, as it were, the ghost of the rhythmic template in the background behind this variation, sort of tying everything that we hear back to the theme in its original form. Another crucial element of the theme, which becomes even more important in the next variation, variation four. Again, you'll feel the theme in the background of the kind of the rhythmic shapes. But remember this falling scale that appeared right at the beginning of the theme, played on the oboe and the bassoon. That falling scale idea, da dee da da, is present all the way through variation four, only now it's in the minor, da da dee da. But you'll hear how it dominates this variation all the time, even though it seems so melodically rich, it's constantly returning to that same idea. Well, that's more or less just the melody. 
But in the background, in the accompaniment, Brahms is weaving ideas from exactly the same material. That descending scale, you'll hear it from the violas to start off with. And then if you listen to the whole variation, you'll notice that there are falling scale figures absolutely everywhere, changing color as they're passed among the departments of the orchestra, moving from the bass to the treble to the middle instruments and back again. Again, Brahms has made an enormous amount out of just one tiny feature of the theme. the fourth variation of Brahms's variations on the theme of Haydn. Very nicely played there indeed by the BBC Symphony Orchestra. I was certainly very much aware of the changing colours as those scale ideas, falling scale ideas, are passed from instrument to instrument. There's also an element here of doing what composers like Mozart and Beethoven and indeed Bach before had used the variation form, which is a kind of method of showing off just what they can do. In Bach's Goldberg variations, for instance, it's a very simple theme that's reworked, but all the time each variation, as it were, shows off another aspect of the keyboard his technique, his brilliance, his virtuoso technique. Brahms is using variation to demonstrate his virtuosity, not as a performer, but as a composer. Just how much he can wring from that simple little tune we heard at the beginning of this piece and presented in constantly changing facets. So what have we heard so far? Well, we've heard three more or less fast variations and then a slow variation. Now this contrast is important because in a way, Brahms is arranging his variations, grouping them, so that they behave a little bit like the movements of a symphony. We've heard a more or less fast first movement, and now we've heard a slow movement. And so, unsurprisingly, next we get something like the fast dance-like scherzo of a symphony. 
So variation five is the same kind of activity as we've heard before, but speeded up, as it were. Although you can still hear that old rhythmic template, five, five, two, 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 five, winding down again in the background, establishing the unity. Then variation six takes a kind of martial character. It bases itself on the three notes of the theme, the first three notes of the theme, da da dum, and stands them on their head, da da dum, and that becomes the basis of this figure. Again, very simple, but again, so clearly derived from that first phrase. And Brahms surrounds that little figure with some very striking and active and dramatic counterpoint. But you'll hear that little Da 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 da. It's always there in the background somewhere. It kind of dominates the entire variation. This is another example of Brahms taking one idea and weaving a whole variation out of it, a whole a whole portrait, as it were, just from one tiny feature. Again, that da 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 figure that we hear all the time comes from that first dee-da-dum-bum right at the beginning of the piece. Variation 7 has something of the character of a Baroque dance. In fact, it's rather like the kind of dance that Bach often wrote called a Siciliano, which is based on a lilting dotted rhythm. It's now quite free and melodic this time. Nevertheless, that freedom is to extend illusory, because again, it's based on something we've heard before, in the previous variation, in fact. Do you remember that downward plunging counterpoint on the treble instruments from variation 6? Dum ta da dum da da becomes the basis of the lilting figure that starts variation seven. And you can still hear, I'm sure, many echoes of the original theme in the background there. The next variation, variation eight, is a presto in the minor key. It's the one that takes us furthest, in a way, from the theme as we first heard it. But I'm sure that by this time we get to this stage in the performance, your ears should be well attuned to what Brahms has been doing with the elements of that theme and should be able to see how it's there in the background behind everything he's doing. 
But there's one more variation on a larger scale still to come, and that's the finale. And here, as I said earlier, Brahms revives another once thought defunct Baroque device, the passacaglia. Now, the passacaglia is a kind of piece of music which is basically a set of variations on a repeated bass figure, the bass figure you hear over and over again. In fact, it's not that far different from the 12-bar bass in jazz, which you repeat over and over again and add ever more intricate parts on top of. And that's not surprising, because just as jazz music originates in the dance, so the form of the passacaglia also originated in folk dance. Now, again, Brahms very ingeniously derives his Passacaglia theme, his bass theme, from the theme. We're going to hear the first few bars of the original Haydn in inverted commas, the St. Anthony Chorale theme, again. But this time I'd like you to listen to what the bass instruments are playing, the cellos and the basses, or the figure that they're plucking out, because this is what's going to be important in Brahms's finale. <laughs> Keep that in mind now as the cellos and basses start the finale with the Passacaglia theme. It's basically just that bass line that we heard the bass instruments plucking out of a moment or two ago, but now sustained in longer notes and bowed. That Passacaglia theme becomes the basis of the entire finale. As you'll hear, it gets ever more intricate and involved, and there's an ever more elaborate contrapuntal weave around that theme, and yet you can hear that bass line continually repeating over and over again, marching forward on the same pattern. That's the essence of Passacaglia writing, and this is how Brahms does it in the first stage of the finale of his St. Anthony Variations. the figure that Brahms repeats over and over again with an ever more elegant and ingenious tapestry of orchestral counterpoint over the top. And yet everything that we'll hear is derived from the variations we've heard before and therefore from the theme itself. The sort of massive cumulative effect in the finale of these variations is all based on material that we've derived from before. It's quite fascinating the way that Brahms used this work as a stepping stone to important things to come. It didn't just give him the confidence to write First Symphony, which he did two years later. 
when he came to his last symphony, the fourth symphony, and based an entire movement on the device of the Passacaglia. Fourth Symphony, the example of what he'd achieved in the finale of his St. Anthony Variations, very much in his ears. There's one instrument we haven't heard, which you will hear in the finale of these variations, is the triangle. Brahms is very careful in his use of percussion, and very rarely adds extra percussion instruments in his music, but he does bring the triangle back in his Fourth Symphony, and that may be a kind of subtle way of acknowledging the importance of these St. Anthony variations for him in achieving the kind of mastery that he had to in order to be able to write those great symphonic statements. But we'll hear that in a moment when we hear the complete performance of Brahms's Haydn variations. Before that, though, are there any questions that you'd like to ask before we hear the complete performance? Somebody over here, lady over here, yes. You mentioned in the finale the Passacaglia, and that's a harmonic idea. Mm. Uh, what about the harmonies in the first few movements? Or are there similarities between the harmonies? Oh yes, this is something that I hope will become obvious now that you hear the variations performed completely. But the, not just that kind of rhythmic template in the background, the five bar phrases and the two bar phrases and the five bar phrase, but also the harmonies that Brahms originally presents in the theme become, they're there in the background in some way or other in every single one of the variations. This is the incredible thing. Brahms's harmonies get a good deal richer and more romantic in some ways 
than the Haydn theme, the Haydn inverted commas theme that he bases his variations on. But there's still, you can feel that the bass line and the harmonic background, the harmonic skeleton is always there. And that's one of the things I think that unites what you're hearing to the theme, even when you can't hear resemblances between the tune itself and what Brahms is doing with it. In a way, the harmonies are even more important than the melodic connections with the theme. Anybody else, anything they'd like to ask? I would like to know uh, how much Brahms was influenced by the music of Schumann, because I know as a young man he was in awe of uh, Schumann. That's a very interesting question. Um, Schumann was one of the first people to encourage Brahms as a composer when he was young. In fact, he made some wonderful, extravagant predictions about Brahms, saying that he was going to be the new great symphonist to take up the lineage after Beethoven. Well, that was a bit of a blessing and a curse at the same time, because imagine being told, being presented to the world as this is the young composer who's going to inherit the, the great shadow of Beethoven, the great mantle of Beethoven. And so that's possibly one one reason why it took Brahms 20 years to finish his first symphony, because he obviously felt, if this is going to live up to Beethoven's example, I'm going to have to work quite hard on it. That's possibly one reason why it took him so long. But also it's fascinating because Schumann, as, as we know, was a composer who started with very, very free romantic forms, an extraordinary breaker of molds and a creator of new, completely fluid musical forms. But as he was getting older, Schumann went more and more back into classicism himself and was more and more concerned to work within tradition rather than to strike out at the kind of new paths that were being presented by revolutionaries like Liszt and Wagner. And I think Brahms was also influenced by that. I think he saw Schumann very much as a defender of the great German tradition in music and saw himself as in his inheritor in that respect. So that might explain why in Brahms there is also this fascination with the music of the past, which Schumann had to some extent uh, established before him. But you can certainly hear things in Brahms occasionally that sound like Schumann. He, he obviously was very, very deeply impressed by Schumann's music and for a long time uh, had the little difficulty in getting himself out of Schumann's shadow as well. This is always the problem when someone has a, a great influence on you. That can be a blessing and a curse. Brahms himself made a famous comment about um, trying to compose in the shadow of Beethoven. He said, you've no idea how difficult, he said, to, to walk forwards with such a giant marching behind you. And I think he had that, that problem not only with Beethoven, but with Schumann too. There's a gentleman over here who also had a question. Yes? Um, what is now known about the composition of the theme and the composer of the theme, and how has it come to light? Um, well, that's very interesting. Brahms himself was an exhaustive historical researcher and, in fact, made some of the pioneering editions of music of, of earlier periods. But he was still under the illusion that Haydn himself had written this theme. He still believed that that was the case. Um, this is one of those fascinating examples in musicologist where you look in even the most authoritative dictionaries and you find the word probably. Um, they, they, they think it was, the, the expert opinion now seems to be that it was probably the work of Ignaz Pleil. But how certain we can be in this case, I don't know. There's still a big question about it, but certainly no copy of the theme exists in Haydn's handwriting. So we can be fairly sure, it seems, that Pleil wrote it, but it's still more of an educated guess than a definitely by Pleil. So I think the, the second version of the title, Variations on the St. Anthony Chorale, is probably going to have to stay as the definitive title for a while, rather than the variations on the theme of Haydn on which, as which it was first published. 
I think there's one more person who had a question. Over here, gentlemen, over here. Simple question, really. Were there any issues of copyright at the time? Um, or was Brahms free to pick any piece of music and write variations on it? Absolutely none, I think. And I think the modern laws of copyright certainly didn't apply in the 19th century anyway. And this is one of the things that composers like Beethoven were constantly fighting, was pirated editions of their own work, sometimes even appearing under the name of another composer. And it seems that it was very difficult to work out how to, to organize a legal comeback when that happened. One of the great advantages for Brahms was that as he himself prepared the pioneering editions of so many of these works, in a sense, if there was anybody's copyright, it was himself. So in, not only was he enriching his own musical knowledge when he prepared these editions, he was actually also in, is, equipping himself with a rich fund of music that he could draw on in the same, in the same sense. But, but no, the, the modern copyright program, which was um, one of the reasons, it seems, why Stravinsky was so keen to revise his own works, for instance, in 1945 and in the late 40s, was that so many of them came out of copyright then. And it was a way of hanging on to the income for that music by, uh, by republishing these works in different forms. But Brahms himself would have had no such problem. I think there's one other person who asked the question over here, yes. How long, how long was it in society before Brahms was recognized as one of the great composers? Um, it was quite a while. Uh, like that other great symphonist of the 19th century, Bruckner, um, he was quite a late developer in terms of coming to confidence in terms of the band of big forms that are audience grabbing. Um, his first piano concerto was, he gave the first performance when he was still in his 20s, but that was, um, that was actually booed at its first performance because in those days he was seen as a very astringent and difficult modernist. It wasn't until really about the time of this work, the St. Anthony Variations, that he started to become really widely known and accepted. In fact, this, this work probably was more of a breakthrough than any other, and it certainly paved the way for the very warm reception that came for the, the first symphony when it was first heard three years later. I think this is about the period when Brahms is really making his name when he's writing this work, at the same time finding his own voice and his own very distinctive style as a composer. Well, thank you very much for your questions. I, I hope those answers maybe shed a little light on what we're to hear now, which is the complete work we've been preparing for in this program, Brahms's Variations on a Theme of Haydn, or Variations on the St. Anthony Chorale, played by the BBC Symphony Orchestra, leader Anna Coleman, conducted by Douglas Boyd.